Hi, and welcome to Minds Over Matter. Today, we'll be talking about mindfulness with Dr. Carla Perlato. We hope you enjoy. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Carla Perlato, and she will tell us a little bit about herself. And she's here to talk to us about mindfulness. Hi, everybody. Uh, so again, my name is Carla Perlato, and I am a licensed psychologist in the state of Nevada. I'm currently working at Toro University, Nevada, as the uh, psychologist for the students there. Oh, awesome. It's an awesome medical school, uh, lots of different programs between uh, physician's assistants and occupational therapists and uh, physicians, um, uh, physicians and uh, physical therapists. Uh, so we do a lot, a lot of mindfulness at Toro. That is awesome. Can you tell us just a little bit about what mindfulness is and why somebody might want to do it? Mm -hmm. So mindfulness is a kind of an umbrella category and meditation is a form of mindfulness. There are many different kinds of meditation. The meditation that I focus on, that I know about, that I practice, that I teach is a mindfulness style of meditation. And so that's what I know most about. Um, all of the benefits that we talk about today about meditation in general apply to all different kinds of meditation. So there's transcendental meditation, or there's using gatas or uh, different techniques. And any of the benefits that I talk about today work for all of them. Okay. It's just that my vehicle is mindfulness meditation. Perfect. Now, coming from just a bystander perspective, I know nothing about mindfulness, assuming what is it in a nutshell? So mindfulness is all about being in this very moment that we're sitting in right here and now, not being in the yesterday, not being in the tomorrow, but being here in this very moment with a sense of um, non-judgmental uh, attitude of curiosity and um, an awareness and, um, and really focusing in where we are here and now. And so you can do anything mindfully, not just meditation. That's why I say mindfulness is kind of an umbrella category that meditation fits under. I can brush my teeth mindfully. I can have this conversation mindfully. Yeah. I can uh, hopefully drive a car mindfully. Eat mindfully. Eat Walk mindfully. mindfully. In fact, there's a whole diet around eating mindfully. Uh, when people are trying to measure what they're eating or to slow down or to lose some weight, perhaps, that if we really apply those mindfulness techniques to eating in itself, there's even a whole, there's a whole diet around that. Oh, that's pretty cool. So what are some of the main benefits that you see someone getting from mindfulness? So mindfulness and mindfulness meditation actually have a slew of benefits. I could go on for days. It's almost like right. it's a it's a panacea, right? It, it cures all your ills. Right. Um, if we look at uh, from a like maybe a scholastic or academic you know support, it helps us with paying attention. It helps us focus. It helps us concentrate. Helps us remember. Um, when we want to recall information, um, recalling information is facilitated by being calm. And so if we can calm ourselves, we remember things better. Um, it increases our ability to uh, sleep. We get uh, improved sleep, reduces anxiety. That when we look at um, scientific studies and the effectiveness of meditation on, uh, uh, as a treatment for anxiety, it's as effective as medication. Not nearly, not sort of, but as effective as That's medication. Amazing. And it yeah, also alters amazing. the brain just as medication does, but naturally, correct? Absolutely. Um, the brain changes 
So some of the other benefits like increased mood, um, I mean, again, go on, right. right? Immunity, this is a big, huge issue right now when we're looking at how do we boost our immunity. You know, everybody's popping vitamin C and zinc and all these extra right. supplements. Meditation will actually boost your immunity and will make you a healthier, healthier person, decreases cardiovascular disease, um, all of those kinds of things. I think, because, and maybe I'm out of turn in saying this, but it treats the root problem the anxiety itself, because you're not thinking about the future constantly, constantly, maybe about the immunity, popping the, you know, vitamin C and whatnot, uh, these preemptive measures of what's to come instead of kind of just being in the moment. Right. And um, it really does, when we want to, if we want to think about going to the root cause, we want to talk about brain changes. Um, one of the things that, that we know about mindfulness meditation is it changes your brain anatomy. And to me, this is one of the coolest things. This really gets my nerd going when, <laughs> when we talk about being able to change um, somebody's brain anatomy, the physical being of their brain. One of the components, one of the parts of our brain is called the amygdala. And the amygdala is our fight or flight or freeze part of the brain. And we know that when people are under chronic stress and lots of anxiety, that the amygdala gets enlarged. And it's like the only part of your brain that you don't want bigger, right? And we know through meditation studies, when we do pre and post brain scans, when we do scientific studies, that the amygdala actually shrinks with uh, meditation as a treatment. And do you have to do it for a certain amount of time before you see brain changes? Most of these brain scan studies that I'm going to talk that I talked to you about are um, the pre and post is about eight weeks. Okay, so not very long. Mm -mm, no, and we and these are significant changes uh, after eight weeks, which means this is a a meaningful difference, uh, but we see those changes even at four-week studies. Those changes are present. It's just that they're there even more so. Um, so it's not something like you have to meditate for like 90 minutes a day for the next 10 years to be able to get these benefits. Um, the benefits happen even after two days. Wow. But it certainly can't be a one and done, and that, that's why we need to practice it. And I think so many people, and I want to talk about barriers to this practice later, may be turned off to this one, not the knowledge, you know, of uh, maybe I have to clear my mind and like, <laughs> you know, I'm judging why I'm having these bad thoughts and it didn't work that first time. So maybe this is all the I can't do know. it. It's not for me. It's just hippy dippy. Right. So, you know, um, we don't say that about sleep. You know, we think sleep is pretty important. We try that. Most of us try that every single day. <laughs> over um, and over. <laughs> over and over. And if we're not very good at it, we do it again. Right. Um, and I would say if, for, if I were talking about brain health, from a, you know, from a holistic medical, whatever perspective, psychological um, idea, number one would be sleep and number two would be meditation. And these are things that we need to do every single day. And meditation becomes one of the hardest, easiest things in the world to do because all you have to do is in a sense, sit there and we don't prioritize it. We don't make ourselves important enough to take 10 or 15 minutes because we don't have to do 90 minutes. We're talking about 10 or 15 minutes in your day. I'm a pretty busy person. I do a lot of different things. I'm a mom and a wife and a psychologist, and I do all kinds of different things. And I have time. I have 10 or 15 minutes in my day. Right. And we shoot for seven days a week, knowing that we are going to fail. And because we want to cultivate this um, culture, this idea of non-judgmentalness with meditation. If we fail at seven days and we make it for five or six days, wow, we win. You know, that's amazing and that's awesome. 
Definitely. So can you talk a little bit about like if somebody who isn't um, familiar with mindfulness, how would like somebody like you say 10 minutes a day, like what would be a good jump off starting point? How would they start? So I really, really recommend doing some kind of a guided meditation. And uh, there are all kinds of apps out there like Calm and Headspace that you can uh, buy a subscription for. And there are amazing apps with lots and lots of material. They have how to's, they have questions like, what do I do if I have an itch and while I'm meditating? Do I scratch it or not? Uh, they have, so they have uh, guides and things like that that will really hold your hand. That being said, you never, ever, ever have to pay for meditation. As long as you have your breath with you, you have the ability to meditate. Uh, there are tons of guided meditations on YouTube that are absolutely free. They're on YouTube and they range anywhere from, you know, a minute, two minutes, three minutes, all the way to like hours. And, yes, right? I've seen those, yes. And when we talk about barriers to meditation and kind of this, you know, people have a lot of misconceptions about what it is. Sometimes in these guided meditations, people take themselves very, very serious, like, now we're going to take some time to do this. You know, move on to the next one. I don't I can't sit and listen to, to the creepy voice on the other side. Not right? going to do that. You know, it's hard enough to sit down and meditate without having to listen to some weirdo. Right. So, so move on. It's okay. Don't let's not be judgmental about it. Let's, let's do what we need to do to facilitate the process. And using a guided meditation isn't cheating or, um, you know, taking the easy way out. It's something that helps connect you to it. It gives you an anchor. Right. And we're all different learners. Some of us learn visually. Some of us learn by, you know, hands-on and practicing it on our own. So I can see, especially as a beginner. Yeah, when you're beginning, you have no idea what am I even supposed to be thinking about. Oh, yeah, I'm not supposed to be thinking about anything. How do I not think about anything? And so I think that guided meditations help just give you a, a jump off. One kind of question I've been interested in asking, are there any outliers or certain individuals where meditation does not work at all or mindfulness does not have any effectiveness? I haven't had an experience with somebody like that. I've had lots of experiences where people just can't get into it, right? They just, you know, for whatever reason, haven't prioritized that in their life. Um, But as far as um, just not working kind of thing, I haven't had that experience. So anyone can use it. Absolutely. So like in the school, for instance, if we were going to introduce this to our, our student body, what would be the benefits for teachers or parents at home? What would be the benefit of them taking that 10 minutes a day? Right. So there are a ton, again, if we're going to talk about scientific studies, a ton of studies that support using mindfulness techniques and meditation in schools. Uh, what we see happen is that test scores go up and everybody's talking about test scores and Mm -hmm. right. It's how we measure our school's worth. Right. Uh, And meditation has been shown to increase test scores. So on the individual level and the school level, you know, that's a good measurement. Um, Also referrals to deans or um, behavioral issues, those kinds of things, those all go down in schools that introduce mindfulness meditation. Uh, I have a, a friend who is an elementary school teacher at a different school, and um, I introduced her to the Calm app, and she started playing it for her students when they would come in from lunch. So after that period of high activity where kids have just eaten and run around the, the playground, and they come in and they're all noisy, and she'd just sit down and she would just do five minutes, not even 
not even 10 or 15. She did literally like five minutes of meditation with the kids. And the afternoon was completely different than uh, it had been before she started using this practice. It got to the point where the kids would come running in and say, you know, let's meditate. Let's meditate. We want to do our meditation. The kids were asking for it. Because it grounded them. Absolutely. And it gets, it has like a little addictive flavor to it. Yes, it does. When you do it on a regular basis. Like, I want to go do this again. Because you feel better after you do it. Mm -hmm. And you know that you can, you may not be able to verbalize the difference, but you just know in your body, you feel better. You're either more energized, you're more focused, you're more grounded, whatever it is. But you feel better. So, of course, you want more and more of it. And I've utilized it in my life. And one of the lessons I've taken away is the paradox almost of gaining control by giving up control Mm -hmm. with this act of mindfulness. Absolutely. We've talked a little bit about, you know, thinking and whether or not you're supposed to be thinking or not thinking uh, in the context of meditation. I would challenge anybody not to think. You know, I, we jokingly call ourselves the thinking ape because uh, that's what we do is we think. We think all of the time. And so to stop thinking would be a far greater challenge, I think, than, than anything else. Um, but instead of trying to control those thoughts, like you're saying, it's that paradox. Um, one analogy is having a river of thoughts so that if you're standing in the river of your thoughts and you're trying to uh, block the river, you know, trying to stop the, that river of thoughts heading towards you, what's going to happen? The river is just going to pick you up and sweep you away. You know, you're going to get knocked into the rocks and everything else. Um, or if you just get carried away by your thoughts and you float along and you're not, you know, you have no direction, you're just being um, taken control of, over by your thoughts. Neither of these are really helpful, but if we can kind of take a moment to stop, pull ourselves out of the water and sit at the bank, and watch the water go by, we don't have to impact the water. We don't have to impact the thoughts. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to try to stop it or speed it up or anything else. We can just sit there and notice, have that awareness of those thoughts in a non-judgmental and curious way, and then they aren't controlling us. And that's why I really want to get to the point of this, and I think it's getting to the why we're having the thoughts, because when you sit by that riverbank, I think then you're actually going to observe, why am I angry? Why am I having these thoughts of, you know, paranoia of the future, you know, with my immunity, perhaps? And we don't have to answer that question. We don't have to answer why. Personally, I think why is probably one of the hardest questions in the world to answer. Uh, you know, why did I choose, you know, these shoes today? I could come up with a hundred reasons why I chose these shoes, but it is it the real reason why I picked these shoes yeah. today. Um, and does it really matter? And does it really matter? Is <laughs> right. it important? You know, yeah. is it is it the butterfly effect here, you know, or or not? And so why am I having these thoughts about the tomorrow? I'm noticing that I'm having a thought about why am I having a thought about tomorrow? Yeah. And I can let that thought go on down the river. Yeah. And not worry about it. Right. Don't, I don't have to engage with it. Just because it's there, you don't have to indulge it. Right. Because I think a lot of us, especially like when we were in the height of the pandemic and we were a lot of isolation, our minds went really into this spinning zone of like, I can't do this. Why can't I do this? I want to do this. You know. And so sometimes we have those thoughts and just by acknowledging it but not engaging with them helps them dissipate. Absolutely. So, you know, we talk about in mindfulness that that we don't have to do anything. We don't have to try to relax. We don't have to try to control our breath. We don't have to control our thoughts. We just observe them. 
But what we know, um, again, from more studies, is that when you observe something, it changes the nature of it. You know, there's a, this tunnel where they shoot electrons down this tunnel, and it's called the, this something called the Hawthorne effect. And they have people who are watching it. And um, when they're watching these electrons go down the tunnel, you can't actually see them. They're electrons. They're, they're right. tiny, right? But when we uh, kind of observe these, these electrons, the behavior of the electrons changes by having an observer in front of the electrons who can't actually see them. So, you know, that's the, the kind of the trick, I guess, of mindfulness meditation is that you don't have to try to relax. You don't have to sort of make something happen. You just have to notice that you're tense. Right. And can you kind of talk about um, the spirituality part of it versus the religious part of it and how people kind of make judgments against mindfulness because of that? Mm -hmm. So my meditation in general has a very long history with every religion on the planet, right? Um, we, we talk about meditations from you know, throughout, throughout history. Um, meditation is not a, a, a religious-specific activity to do. Um, I don't even know that I would call it a, a spiritual-specific thing to do. It's a brain thing to do. Okay. Right. So anybody from any walk of life, any um, socioeconomic status, any religious background, um, any level of education can take advantage of something that's absolutely free and is going to protect their brain health, you know, into their old age. Which is pretty amazing because, I mean, you're, you're changing the course of your life, like you said, without spending a lot of money and not spending a lot of time. Right. We know that, that uh, there is this, what we call natural, there's a natural brain shrinkage that happens over time as we age. Um, and I say we call it natural because I've kind of come to this position that I don't think it's natural anymore. That if we meditate, and again, going back to those studies, those studies show that for people who are regular meditators over their lifetime, they do not have that brain shrinkage. Oh, wow. And people who are in their 50s have the same speed, facility, and dexterity in their brain of people who are in their 20s. So we don't have to have our brains shrink over time. We don't. If have we to exercise them. If we exercise them, absolutely. So it's just like your body, your brain's a muscle, you have to exercise it. Mm -hmm. And so the benefit for like introducing this to young kids is huge. Yeah, we've seen the evidence already from kids coming back from lunch, from your story. I've, I've heard some stories here at the school of it being utilized, especially with distance learning when you're on a laptop all day, right. you know, you need those breaks, I'm assuming, so. Absolutely. You know, the Dalai Lama says something to the effect of if we taught all eight-year-olds how to meditate, that we could eliminate violence in one generation. That's pretty powerful. That's an amazing statement. Every time I think about that statement, I have to kind of pause. Yeah. And let that sink in. Because one generation is not very many. <laughs> well, when you think about actions and, and violence, a lot of it comes down to impulsivity and the inability to really control one's emotions. You know, there's a lot more variables than that, but that's just right. my assumption. Right. And there's a, I'll call it a side effect of meditation that, um, when you are um, in the, the angst of something, whether it's an emotional angst or a physical pain of something, and you're wrapped up in that moment, like, you know, oh, my, you know, I, I twisted my ankle, my ankle hurts, and, and we're, I'm, I'm stuck in that, that angst of that moment. Um, I don't have any 
choices. I'm, I'm stuck there. I, I just have to feel the pain and that suffering of the pain. And if it's anxiety, I'm having a panic attack. I'm, I'm in my head saying, oh my gosh, I'm having another panic attack. Mm-hmm. Here I am thinking about all these things and I'm stuck there. But there's something that happens in the brain when you um, meditate on a regular basis. And I'm not talking about years. I'm talking about you know weeks, months. <laughs> that when you start meditating, there's a, a you, as you build and develop that awareness, you're able to step away from that angst, and you can look at yourself and say, "Oh, my ankle is hurting. Oh, I'm having an anxiety attack. Oh, there's this suffering that's happening." And in that space where we have that awareness, where we've stepped away from the angst, we have an option to choose something different. We can go back into that angst. We can go, yep, it's hurting, and I'm going right back into it. I'm not going to take your choice away from you. But we have the option to maybe do something different. Maybe I get an ice pack for my ankle. Maybe I go for a walk outside to clear my head. Mm -hmm. I have an option. I have a choice. And that's not something that we have to cultivate when we meditate. It's not like we have to sit there and go, I want to build up my, you know, my space between my angst and my, my choice. It's a side effect. And that's when we, when we look at relieving suffering, that space, that building of that awareness, that's where we can alleviate suffering. And when I think about that quote from the Dalai Lama about teaching eight-year-olds to meditate and, and relieving the world of violence, that's violence is suffering. It's suffering on the part of the person who's doing the violence just mm-hmm. as much as the person who's receiving the violence. And if we can create that space, or maybe we don't have to have that, and we can make different choices, it's amazingly powerful. And I think that that's in line with, with any religion. Yeah. What right. stuck out to me was like recognizing that you're actually hurting. You know, and that's kind of why when we were talking earlier about sitting on the the bank and kind of asking why, I think that's sort of more what I was alluding to was being able to recognize, hey, I'm in pain too. And let me assess what's going on here so that I can be mindful for others, you know. Right. Absolutely. And I think that's part of, I think that's a really good point because when we started this, we talked about not taking that 10 minutes because we feel guilty of taking that selfish moment. But if you look at the big picture of mindfulness, if I'm mindful, that spreads many benefits to everybody around me. So it's actually probably a selfless act more than a selfish act. Right, right. Like if I'm stressed out and I know I have to teach a group of 30 kids, how great is that instruction going to be? Right. You know, and I, I know we're all given the right to be stressed out that's not to say don't feel your emotions but know when it starts to become a recurring problem and a pattern that you yourself could possibly fix with an ice pack right maybe we don't have to suffer you know right how powerful is that maybe we don't have to suffer that would be amazing like you can't even really wrap your brain around that because we're so used to suffering in some way emotionally physically or whatever when you say what if we don't have to suffer that's a huge statement. Yeah, someone may even say, well, that's a load of hooey, you know, we're always going to feel bad feelings, you know, we're always going to have some sort of, you know, my my pet may die, I don't know, and I may be sad. So, like, what do you mean there with the word mm-hmm. suffering so we can define it a little bit more? I absolutely agree with you. I don't ever want to take somebody's feelings away from them. And I think to have a true human existence, we need a full range of, of feelings from the darkest to the brightest, 
right? That's that's what defines us as humans in our human lifetime, right? And so if if somebody dies that that we're close to, whether it's a human or a pet or something, right. you know that that's very sad. You know, let's be sad. Let's honor the person. Let's cry for that person. Let's talk about that person. You know, and we don't necessarily have to suffer. It's a choice, right? Grief is is a natural process. It's a cathartic process that the body goes through um, to to heal um, a wound, so to speak, right? So if I break my leg and I have a wound, I need to take time to nurse that and take care of it, um, so that maybe I wear a cast or maybe I, you know. Uh, elevated or whatever it is that I need to do, then I maybe have surgery to, to help me with that broken leg. Um, a loss like that, uh, where we're grieving the loss of somebody or something, um, you need to take time to take care of yourself. And we don't have to add extra suffering on top of that. Sometimes we'll say, well, I'm not um, crying in the right way. Or I'm not mourning in the right way. You judge your, you judge your own grief. Like, Absolutely. Why is everyone crying and I'm not crying? I'm not an empathetic person. You know. Yeah, so you're really not saying like let's make everyone's sadness just go away. That's just like a no. that's a utopia, right? But it's like let's not give the sadness any more unfair judgment or any judgment that maybe, you right. know, like maybe we can just be sad. Right. Maybe we can just be happy. Maybe we can just be mad. Maybe we can just be scared. Right. And so not want to take any of those away from you. Dwelling in the emotion and really suffering. And I think allowing the emotion to overtake you is because we all feel them. And I think sometimes in our life, too, one emotion takes over and we hyper focus on that, whether it's sadness, happiness, anxiety, anxiousness, whatever it is. And I think that mindfulness kind of puts more balance into us because we're taking a step away from it, observing it and not giving it maybe as much power as we had done in our past. If we take that kind of same idea with physical pain, um, we know that people who are regular meditators report having less pain. So the question, the science question becomes, you know, are they experiencing less pain? Like physically, is there a difference in their pain? And so they stick them in MRIs and they like, you know, stick a pen in their toe or something, you know, or they, they use cold, like severe cold to, to elicit a pain reaction from people. And we find that the people who, um, who meditate on a regular basis report their experience of the pain is less right they're still but they're when we look at the mri results their brain is still reacting the same you can't tell the difference between the people who are meditating and not meditating the pain flash is the same it's exactly the same but their reaction is different and their um, reaction that's where we see a brain change happen is that when we focus on so i say like i twist my ankle my ankle is hurt and i start uh being aware of of that, being very mindful about the pain of the ankle. I'm feeling the the perimeter. What is the perimeter of the pain? How far does the pain extend? Is it a throbbing pain? Is it a sharp pain? Is it feeling hot? Is it feeling cold? Is it tingling? What happens in my brain is sensory parts of my brain light up like a Christmas tree, right? And so we would think. So we would think that when the sensory parts of our brain light up, that we would have more pain. But ironically, the emotional reaction piece in our brain goes quiet. So instead of having the peanut gallery saying, oh, yeah, I'm in pain and this is going to be so bad and I'm going to have to have a surgery and blah, 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 all these thoughts, they go away because we're hyper focused on the, the pain itself. Yeah. And what we find happens is that we don't have the suffering. We don't have the angst about the pain. 
and the pain itself actually diminishes. It heals faster while the body recognizes just the pain and it's focusing, I'm thinking, all of its energy and, and, and resources, at least the ones it dedicates to pain management, on that, you know, and rather than thinking about how much pain I'm going to be in for the next three months. Right. One of our... Um, you know, most, uh, I guess, one uh, famous approach to mindfulness uh, meditation is mindfulness-based stress, stress reduction, MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction. And it's John Kabat-Zinn. And he uh, created this program uh, decades ago in response to chronic pain. And for people who were kind of resistant, not resistant, but resistant to the treatment, they were having difficulty resolving their pain issues. And so he created uh, MBSR. Um, MBSR is an eight-week program. It's very specific. It's very manualized. Whether mm-hmm. you take an MBSR course here or in New York or in it's Italy, it's exactly the same, which is why when I referred to those brain scan studies before and I said those are eight-week brain scan studies, it's because many of them use MBSR as their method to teach uh, mindfulness meditation because it is so repetitive it's so manualized we can use it over and over and it's the same right that's why our our brain scan studies are eight weeks um but that but mbsr was in itself created to help with pain with chronic pain it's really interesting so it has a lot of utilities i'm sure we're just getting to know and understand and it'll grow from here and i think it's interesting too because a lot of people when they think of mindfulness they think of emotional pain and you're talking physical pain so it obviously connects with both parts of our body, our mind and our physical. Can you talk a little bit about, because we are seeing students with a lot of anxiety, like how could mindfulness with kids asking questions about, you know, COVID-19 and the pandemic, how can mindfulness help those kind of questions and those kind of fears? Right. So, you know, I think you have to be honest with kids and, and answer things to the best that, that you can within their ability. The question is going to be answered differently to a kindergarten than to a sixth grader, right? Um, you know, and what pieces, parts of, of that answer are going to be relevant to the child and, and what do they really want to know? You know, they may be asking a question about COVID-19, but maybe they don't even know what that is. Right. They just heard the word scary happening out there in the world right right now Um, and I think this is a um, you know this is a time where we need meditation and mindfulness maybe more than ever agreed right so I think you have to really look at at the child and what what is it that they can answer and um, and maybe help to refocus them of saying what does that mean for you right now What where are we right now we can't you know think about tomorrow and that doesn't mean, you know, when people, when I tell people, oh, we got to think about the today, not the tomorrow, that doesn't mean we throw our plans out the window. I work in a medical school and I have people who have all kinds of plans, you know, right. plans coming out their ears and, and they're going to do long-term plans, long, super long-term <laughs> plans, you know, four years of medical school and then, you know, three to five years of residency and then, you know, fellowship. I mean, we're talking about ridiculous plans, right? Um, and I'm not telling them not to do that, but we can't be in residency today. Today we're here in school in this particular class on this particular day and even more so today we're here in my office. So let's talk about being here in my office. Um, you know and helping them connect I think to their breath is, is, is another important piece. When we get anxious and nervous and upset our breathing tends to become more erratic. We hold our breath, we have sharp inhales of breath, which really triggers our, our sympathetic nervous system, our fight or flight part of our brain. Um, and so really working with them of taking long breaths out 
and refocusing on their breath and coming back to an anchor of the breath, then maybe we can move forward and have a conversation about what this crazy COVID thing is. Right, but first anchor yourself. Yeah. I agree with that. And I know too, sometimes like parents are um, anxious about different things like, you know, distance learning or having their kids around all the time. How could mindfulness for a parent kind of ease into their life to make it a better situation for them? I think, first of all, I think it's super important that parents are honest with their kids in the sense of their emotions. And, um, you know, like I hear a lot uh, as parents, they don't want to cry in front of their Mm -hmm. kids. And I think what a shame. Because what's the lesson that we're giving the kids? Don't cry. You're not allowed to cry. Don't do that. Mommy doesn't cry. You can't cry. Instead, why don't we cry in front of our children and connect our feelings and say, I'm feeling sad today. I'm feeling overwhelmed today because the world is on fire and I need to sort things out and I'm going to be okay. And it builds that resiliency and everything else. Teaches comfortable with emotions and, and vulnerability. So... Right. Maybe today we're going to have pizza and we're going to watch a movie because, you know, we just need to, you know, I'm not going to cook dinner. I'm not, we're not going to do extra stuff. We're just going to have some, you know, pizza and and cook and watch a movie together because it's okay to take care of ourselves when we're feeling overwhelmed. You know, I want to pass that on to my kids that it's okay to have those feelings. Right. The judgment in as a parent is like, I don't want to show weakness because how is my kid going to believe anything that I say? You know, if I shed or a tear. Or if I can't protect them. Right. Yeah. That somehow or another the child is going to feel afraid. That if mm-hmm. I feel afraid, now my child is going to feel afraid. Um, but if I don't teach my child how to be a- afraid and overcome it, when something scary happens, it's going to be a hundred times scarier. Right, and that's where that anxious anxiety and everything kicks in because they don't have those coping skills. Like, I can be sad and know that I'm going to move on. I can be worried and know that I'm going to get through that worry, too. I can be wrong. Yeah, that's a big one. I know. So one of the takeaway messages is just anyone can use this, and it can be applied with 10, 15 minutes a day, and it doesn't have to be every single day. And you can see benefits within two days and then well into six weeks and, and well onto months after that. Right. Because your brain anatomy will continue to, to change. You know, so um, I told you about the, the amygdala gets smaller and it's it, every other part of our brain that's affected by meditation gets bigger, thicker, um, you know, beefier. So our prefrontal cortex, which is our executive functioning, which is our decision making, um, where we can decide what is it we're going to do, that part of our brain actually gets beef, beefed up. It gets thicker. Um, so we're better able to make decisions. You know, And we see many, many more changes go on for days about all the different parts of the brain that get thicker and bigger. So the sooner you start, the better. You know, Absolutely. The stronger you'll be in the And the run. younger you start. Yeah. It sounds like because it's got lifetime effects. Oh, well, here's another one for you. Um, telomeres are, um, if you think about shoelaces, and shoelaces have that little plastic at the end of them. Right. Um, our genetic code has the same kind of, we'll say, a little plastic at the end of like our genetic sheath. code. Yeah. Right? And those are called telomeres. And uh, as we, as our cells replicate over you know, natural in our lifetime, our cells replicate and create new cells uh, that gets worn down. That little plastic cap end cap on our genetic material gets worn down uh, and eventually 
it gets worn away and we die, right? Right. So if we can actually protect the, our telomeres, then in a sense, it's sort of a fountain of youth. And what we find is that the two, two different things that actually extend the length, not just protect the telomeres, but extend the length of your telomeres, two of those things are yoga and meditation. Oh, wow. The Fountain of Youth was found on our podcast today. Thank you. So if you want to live a longer life, we'll definitely have some links that we'll post on our podcast, uh, link in some of the videos hopefully you're interested in, some beginner uh, mindfulness videos that our listeners can get into right away of all ages. Absolutely. And if you just had one thing to tell our listeners, like maybe one takeaway thing of how mindfulness will benefit or um, help their life, what would be that one thing? Oh my goodness, there's so, so, so much. I think I think it has to do with the suffering, but I'm gonna flip that around and say that um, it doesn't just reduce suffering. What does it give us? It gives us peace. It gives us the ability to, um, to be at peace in the world. So if you want peace, you want mindfulness. Well, thank you for stopping in. Thank you. It was a pleasure having you. This has been the third installment to Minds Over Matter. We look forward to seeing you next time.